Praise God. Praise the Lord. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. <clears throat> Praise God. I hope you're in the habit of bringing your Bibles to church. Uh, that way you can read along with us, follow along with us. In fact, we're going to be turning to a number uh, of different scriptures this morning and uh, just reading some things from the Bible with regard to uh, the doctrine of the Trinity. This is the fifth message in uh, our series, our year-long series of contending for the faith. Uh, the Bible tells us in Jude, who was the physical earthly brother of Jesus, uh, wrote to a group of people saying that he needed to encourage them to earnestly contend for the faith, not your own personal faith, that is your ability to believe, but the body of doctrine that we hold dear and that encompasses all of Christianity. Because it was under attack then and still under attack today. Uh, in fact, you will find within the church itself those who believe that they are, in fact, Christian, uh, who reject this doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, it is one of the most maligned and, and uh, pushed away doctrines, and in fact, it is becoming uh, very fast. Uh, it seems as though people are very fast forsaking this kind of a teaching. Uh, and you look around within the church, and part of the reason is, is that we have, we have sort of spawned this group of people who, if they can't get their minds around it, if they can't reduce it with logic, then in fact it can't be true. The one thing that we have to remember when we approach Scripture, and when we approach especially the study of God and who God is, and what, what is it that makes up God? How, how is it revealed in Scripture? There are going to be times where we are going to literally scratch our heads and say, I just don't get it. Uh, and it, it's not a math problem that you can then just go ahead and somehow get a tutor to help you figure it out. There are things in Scripture that you may not get your mind around because our minds are finite. They come to an end, our ability to understand. God is infinite, and so he is beyond, in many ways, our comprehension. And yet, everything he wanted us to know about him is found in the Word of God. This is, in fact, the Bible, his revelation to us of who he is. Everything that he wanted us to know is revealed right here in this book. This is why it is so absolutely essential for us as Christians to read the Bible and not just read it, but know it, study it, learn it, get it into our spirit so that when we are attacked in our faith, not by the devil, but the faith that we have, then we know how to give an answer. The doctrine of the Trinity is something that is so important for us as Christians to believe in. 
But let's just get right to it, shall we? What do we mean by the word Trinity? What does it mean? The word Trinity literally means tri-unity. That is, as somebody once said, three in oneness. Okay, picture three, but in absolute oneness together. There is a unity there of three. Is the word found in the Bible? You will have some who will, their basic rejection of this doctrine is, the word isn't found in the Bible. No, it's not. You're absolutely right, it is not. But nonetheless, just because it's not does not mean that we shouldn't seek to understand this concept because the concept of the Trinity, the doctrine, is taught throughout Scripture. Starting in the Old Testament and going through into the New Testament, it is there in substance, it is there in form, and many times when you get into the prophets, it's a little bit veiled, but nonetheless, it's still there. The doctrine, the teaching of the Trinity is present. It is there. We must remember that though the word isn't there, the teaching is there. Uh, and it's there throughout Scripture. Well, how do we handle the idea that it's not found in the Bible for those who might reject it based on the fact that it's not present? Well, we could change the concept so as to make it more palatable to our human reasoning. And in fact, this is really the essence of what the Jehovah's Witnesses have done. They have changed what it is, and their whole basis, the whole basis of, of their founder was, it's got to be logical. And if it's not logical, then it's not true. Well, faith enters into this. God supersedes human logic. He goes beyond it. He doesn't ignore it. There are certainly things in the Bible that are taught that are logical, that we can grasp that are logical, but when it comes to the all in all, the creator of the universe, the one who put everything into motion, the one who is over all, when, when we read about him, we recognize he supersedes anything I can figure out. And so it's not a matter of logic. Those who would reject it say, well, it's not logical, so therefore I've, I, can't, I can't get my head around it, so I can't believe it. We don't do that. We accept it by faith that God has revealed this is the way it is. Whether you fully comprehend it or not, this is the way it is. Well, we could reject it, but that would be foolish because the teaching of a God who has revealed himself as one in three persons is found throughout Scripture. God has revealed himself in this way. So if God took the time to reveal himself in this way in Scripture, why would I either change Scripture to make it more palatable to my reasoning? Why would I reject it if that's how God has revealed it? Certainly we can't stand back and say, that's not what God means. No, we, we can't do that. That's messing with Scripture. That's changing Scripture. And you cannot change what the scripture says. It speaks for itself and its message must come through whether you fully comprehend. How many of you, I'm just curious, in reading of the scripture, reading the Bible from time to time, 
How many of you approach a passage and you come across something that just baffles you? I mean, the questions are just pouring out of your head, right? You do that, right? We all do. There are times where we read something and we don't fully comprehend it. Now, do we throw it out because we don't understand it? No, we don't. But what we do find from time to time, now how many of you have had this wonderful aha kind of moment where you're, you've read one thing and you didn't understand it, but then you're reading in another place in the Bible and you get to that place in the Bible and all of a sudden that one verse helps to interpret the other verse that baffled you and all of a sudden you say, aha, now I understand. You've had that moment. We all have had that moment. Scripture interprets Scripture, and this is why it's so important that we go to the Scripture to understand and to look at this. Or what we could do, the fact that it's not found in the Bible or the word Trinity is not found in the Bible, we could do this. And I think this is the wisest of all of our choices. We could choose to believe what is revealed in Scripture while recognizing our own finite understanding may not fully comprehend the infinite quality of his nature. In other words, God's bigger than us and smarter than us. And we need to accept that. And how he has revealed himself to each and every one of us, it is absolutely essential that we accept it by faith. And brothers and sisters, it is powerful when we accept it by faith. When all of a sudden we begin to doubt one part of our belief, I'm here to say that when you doubt it and then you begin to reject it, all other things will begin to be a, a, a crazy kind of a, a, a downfall of uh, uh, almost like dominoes toppling over. When all of a sudden you begin to reject one area of doctrine, all the other ones follow after that. You reject the doctrine of the Trinity, you have to reject the belief that there was a virgin birth. You reject the doctrine of the Trinity, you have to reject the deity of Jesus Christ. You have to also then reject that this Bible is false. It leads one to another. So we have to maintain, we have to contend for the faith and this doctrine, brothers and sisters, is absolutely under attack. So how do we define the Trinity? I'm going to repeat this. You'll forgive me if I'm not preaching your typical kind of message, but this is not your typical kind of message. I'm teaching it to you, hopefully. We could define the Trinity this way. Listen clearly. Scripture shows us that there is one God revealed in three distinct persons. Those persons are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are one in nature and substance. They are, the, are of the same substance, yet distinct or different in their relationship to one another. And the beautiful thing is, also, they are distinct in their operation in our lives. So they will perform a particular or different function in all of our lives, depending on the situation, depending on the moment. Now you say, well, do I have to sit there and try to figure out which, which part of the Trinity is, in fact, 
you know, working. No, you don't. It's God working. Remember, we, have, we serve one God. The Bible is very clear that there is one God. The, the, the word of God came to the people of Israel through Moses and said, Behold, the Lord your God is one. Absolutely, he is one. Why did we turn to Genesis chapter 1? Let's go there right now. Because from the very beginning, we see a Godhead. We see God, but yet we see distinct persons in the Godhead right from the get-go. What does the Old Testament say about the concept or the teaching of the Trinity? There are a number of Old, Old Testament passages we're only going to deal with just a few today. We don't have time to get into all of them. This is a, this is a you know, week, few weeks long study of the Trinity in and of itself and I'm packing it into one message today. But what does the Bible say? Genesis chapter 1, starting at verse 1, and go down to verse 2. The Bible says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Not Darwin's theory of evolution. Not what most scientists seem to say with such clarity and such force. No, Darwin didn't do it, or at least his theory of evolution, that random selection over time, that didn't do it. God created. Now we have God revealed in verse 1. Verse 2 says this, now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, in this moment, we have in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, we have God the Father present as at creation. He is there. He is easily seen in the Old Testament in chapter 1, verse 1. In verse 2, we have the Spirit. You say, well, where's the Son? Well, there is an interesting study that was done by some ancient rabbis as they were translating the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew Bible, out of Hebrew and into their ancient language of Aramaic. And they did a study on the one word, that one word that we see right in verse 1. It says, in the beginning. Now, they studied this word beginning. And they found that it operates, this one word can also mean, and it operates in sort of a synonymous kind of way with the word firstborn. So listen, this is how they translated the Hebrew Bible into Aramaic, which was one of the languages that actually Jesus spoke. This is how they translated verse 1. This was how it read for them. In the beginning, by the firstborn, firstborn not meaning created, but meaning in rank. Okay, let's understand that also. By the firstborn, God created the heavens and the earth. Imagine that. To me, that's an interesting translation. Whether or not that is actually how it should have been in the moment, we see then, if we were to accept that, Three persons of the Trinity right from the very beginning of the Bible. 
Now we can go into the New Testament and we can go to John chapter 1 and verse 1 and we can find there also that Christ was in fact in the beginning. The beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we, we see Jesus. All three of the Trinity are there, and they are there in absolute oneness and unity. One of the reasons why I believe we have a hard time understanding the idea of this, this intense unity is because we as, as Christians are constantly striving for it. In other words, we haven't arrived yet. God has. We haven't. We strive for it. We should be, at least. We should be fighting for unity, not fighting one another in the body of Christ. Why? Because that becomes a picture of who God is. Three in one. There is this concept of oneness of the three. They are so closely related and intertwined that it, it can be said that God is one. And yet in three distinct persons. They are in absolute unity with one another. That's Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 and 2. Let's jump down to Genesis 1 and verse 26. We see now God referring to himself in a plural form. For those of you who couldn't stand English, welcome to the club. But we know that plural means what? More than one. We got that much, didn't we? Plural means more than one. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26 says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Here God says, let us make man in our image. And then he did. He made male and female. From the very beginning, the man and the woman were on the same level. It's only been man that has tried to push that idea or that concept down. But we have God referring to himself, and there are other places in the book of Genesis where we also see that again, where God refers to himself in the plural form. God wasn't just speaking to the angels because we are not made in the image of angels. We were created in the image of God. What an amazing thought that God would do that and he would create us in his image. Now, that's in the book of Genesis at the very beginning. And that's only a small part of it. Let's jump into some of Old Testament prophecy. We could go to the Psalms. There are a number of verses of Scripture. There are a number of passages there. But I'd like you to go with me to the book of Isaiah. And I want you to see the revelation of the idea of this one God, but in distinct persons, revealed as three distinct persons. Their wills are in absolute harmony and unity together. Isaiah chapter 48 and verse 16. Isaiah 48 and verse 16. Let's see how it was revealed, and then we're going to go to Isaiah 61 and then Isaiah 63 in just a moment. But the Bible says this, Come near me and listen to this. From the first announcement, I have not spoken in secret, at the time it happens, I am there, 
And now the sovereign Lord has sent me with his spirit. Now the me is referring to God the Father. And oftentimes the word Lord is actually a plural form of the Hebrew word or the Hebrew word translated into English is a plural form for God. So we see right here in this verse, we see the Trinity mentioned, or at least in some fashion mentioned. The sovereign Lord has sent me with his spirit. The me, sorry, the me referring to Jesus. The sovereign Lord referring to Yahweh or God the Father. The me being Jesus and the, the, the spirit, the Holy Spirit. Right here in the book of Isaiah, we see all of these mentioned. And God goes on and he, he speaks in chapter 61 and verse 1. The Bible says this, and this is the great passage, uh, verse of Scripture, that Jesus actually applied to himself. As he was embarking on his ministry, he stood up in the synagogue, and the Bible says that he opened to the scroll, or the scroll of Isaiah was given to him, and he found the place where this one verse is Found. It says this, the spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me and Jesus, the me in here again is Jesus to preach good news to the poor. And he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for prisoners. Right there we see again the Trinity mentioned in this one verse of Scripture that then Jesus reads as he's about to embark on his ministry. So it's there in the Old Testament. It's there in Genesis. It's there in the prophets. It's there in other places in Scripture. Let me just read Isaiah 63 as well, verses 9 and 10. And then we're going to move into the New Testament. Isaiah 63, verses 9 and 10. The Bible says, in all their distress, he too was distressed, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Yet they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit, so he turned and became their enemy, and he himself fought against them. Now we look at that and we realize that in many times in, in Old Testament scripture, especially in the prophets, the prophets didn't fully comprehend all that they were saying about something that was future. But nonetheless, they, they proclaimed the word of God. Isaiah is preaching and proclaiming and writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we see this concept of the Trinity revealed in the Old Testament. It's a little bit veiled, a little bit hard to see at times in the Old Testament. But when you come to the New Testament, the understanding becomes deepened, or at least the picture of it becomes deepened. Our understanding hopefully will become deepened in it, and we will understand that this is how God has revealed himself. And for those who would say there is no triune God, we can go to the Bible and we can say, no, it is found in these places. We see it here, we see it here, we see it here. And especially when we get into the New Testament, it's all over the place. And I don't have time to get into 
all over the place. Only a few spots. So let's just, for a moment, if you would, turn with me to the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew chapter 3. And we see this in the New Testament. The baptism of Jesus, Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, give us, in fact, the clearest picture of the Trinity in one moment of time. It's an amazing thing where you see them essentially revealing themselves in some form together. And this is where we see it in the life of Christ. There was also the Mount of Transfiguration where the Father spoke about the Son. But we don't necessarily see in, in real clear terms in the Mount of Transfiguration that story about when Jesus was transfigured. We don't see the Holy Spirit so much. We hear the Father and we see the Son. But now here at the baptism of Jesus, Jesus comes to John and says, John, I want you to baptize me. We know the fight John put up. John said, wait a minute, I'm not worthy to baptize you. I'm not worthy to do that. You should be baptizing me. I'm not worthy to loosen your sandals. Nothing. I, no, he, John the Baptist recognized that the son was greater than, than him or anyone else. But Jesus persisted and said, no, I want you to baptize me. And the Bible lets us know this, verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. Here's the Spirit and the Son. And a voice from heaven said, now this is the Father, this is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Right there in that moment, this is one of the few occasions in Scripture where we see, we actually have a picture of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in one moment in time, though God is timeless, in one moment in time, coming together so we get a picture of who God is. And the absolute oneness of this three is seen by one important word, love. Verse 17, love. Jesus, all throughout in the book of John, Jesus is always talking about the Father and the Spirit. And there, there are a number of places. We're going to go to one or two of them in just a moment. But throughout the book of John, there is always this love that the Son has for the Father, that the Son has for the Spirit, the Spirit has for the Father. All of that, it is based on love. How much more as Christians should we have love for one another? The Trinity, somebody has described the Trinity as that first great community. And, and if you could put it that way, it's, an, it's, it's a great way of putting it, that first great community, and it operates on love. You and I, the Bible says about God, God is love. So that's how we as a body, when we strive for unity, it must be unity in the bond of love and unity in the bond of peace. Let's move on. The Bible says this. Uh, turn to Matthew 28. This is what Jesus said about it. And then we're going to go over to John chapter 14. 
You say, why so much scripture? Well, hopefully you're writing it down. If you're not, you'll get the CD of the sermon. If you're not, you download the podcast, the podcast and you'll, you'll somehow get this into your spirit because you need a place to go in scripture to say, here it is. Because sooner or later, you will encounter those who reject the doctrine of the Trinity. Remember, we are contending for the faith. The best way to contend for the faith is to know the truth. The best way to fight what is false is to have the true. So that's why we go to so many of these other scriptures. What does Jesus say about this topic? Matthew 28 and verse 19. Here Jesus was commissioning his disciples. And he says this, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, more importantly than any kind of a formula of baptism that we might or might not employ on any particular occasion is we have here Jesus stating very clearly and revealing to us once again that God is one in three and three in one. We have it right here. You see, but I can't get my head around this. Is there some kind, you know, some kind of a way, an illustration that would put it to heart? And as good as some of these illustrations are, in my opinion, all of them fall short. The best one that we know, and I was reminded of this this past week, uh, and, and, but the best one that we seem to know is the idea of water. Water is made up of, what is it? Hydrogen and oxygen, right? Two molecules of hydrogen and one molecule of oxygen. Now, in whatever form water is in, it is the same. It, it is always hydrogen and oxygen. Forget it, the salt water. Don't, don't talk to me about salt water. Let's just talk about the fresh stuff. All right? This. Now, in this form, it is in the form of a liquid. If we were to freeze it, it would be an ice cube. Still the same makeup, still the same molecular structure. It is hydrogen and oxygen together. In this form, it is hydrogen and oxygen together. If we were to pour this into a hot plate or a hot, hot pan, and eventually there would be steam that come up, would come up. In that particular case, as far as I understand and know it, it is still the same substance, hydrogen and oxygen together. Where it seems, in my opinion, to fall short is if you were to change this one amount of water, change it, let's say freeze it, and then let's say after you freeze it, you thaw it. It ceases to exist in its frozen state. It becomes a liquid. And then when you change it to the vapor, the steam, it ceases to exist in the form of a liquid. So in that way, it falls short. You see... Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are always coexisting, always constant. In that one sense, you would have to say, let's get an ice cube, cut part of the ice cube off, leave that one part frozen, let's make one part of it a liquid, and the other part of that same ice cube, let's make that steam. And then they will all, that one thing will all exist together. In my opinion, that's the only way that we can somehow eventually try to get our heads around the idea 
But in my opinion, it all falls short because God is greater than us. He will not be reduced to our own finite thinking. He cannot be, or if he is, he ceases to be God. Don't you want to believe in something that is greater than yourself? I know I do. So Jesus says right there in Matthew 28, verse 19, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we see the Trinity. Jesus then condones this idea, this concept of three and one. Let's move to John 14. Turn over to John 14, verses 16 and 17. John 14, verses 16 and 17. The Bible says this. And I will ask the Father, I, who? Jesus. I will ask, who? The Father. And he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. That counselor is the Holy Spirit. In this, we, we, in John 14, Jesus talks a lot about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, what his role will be, what he will do, what he'll accomplish. But right here we have the three in one, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you, and I love this, and will be in you. He's not just going to be alongside of you. That's the idea of the word counselor or the one called alongside to help, the, the paraclete, the one called alongside to help. But instead, he will be in you. So wherever you go, he is always there and he is there within you to speak to you, to help you, to encourage you. But right here, Jesus again condones the idea, proclaims the idea that there is a trinity. As difficult as, as logic finds it, nonetheless, it is present and must be believed. Now, what does Paul say about it? Paul says a lot of things, but we're only going to go to one verse of Scripture, and then I want to close. Paul says this in, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 14. Mentioned in other epistles as well. It's there uh, very clearly throughout many of the epistles written by Peter and John and, and some of the other apostles. But Paul, in many places, uh, as well, teaches this and proclaims it. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 14, the Bible says this, May the grace of, our, of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, that is the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Not only do we have packed into this one verse the Trinity, but we also get some sense of the idea of some of the roles that they will play in your life. Some of the functions that they will perform. Some of the things that they will give you or do for you or help you with. We have the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the love of the Father. And we have the fellowship of the Holy Spirit to be with you all. In my opinion,
opinion, brothers and sisters, that there is no other way to believe. There is no rejection of a teaching that is absolutely so clearly found throughout the Old Testament and especially in the New Testament, this idea and this concept that God is three in one. We have to believe it and to contend for the faith will require us to dig a little bit, find out what the Bible says and get it in our hearts and in our spirits so that when we are confronted by those who would say, but it's not found in the Bible, you can say, oh, it absolutely is found in the Bible, though the word Trinity is not. The teaching is throughout Scripture. And we can go to these places and we can fight for what we believe and we can uphold it in a world that is looking for truth. Listen, when we come to the Scripture, we have to understand this is the truth. And when you know the truth, the truth will set you free. When you proclaim the truth, not only do you get pumped about it and get a good feeling about it, but when you proclaim the truth, the truth will begin to work in people's hearts and lives to bring about a change in them that they never dreamed could happen. We have to know the truth. I'm not saying we've all got to be great theologians. I am not one. But I'm here to let you know, brothers and sisters, that when we understand a little bit more of what is already clear in Scripture, we will be able to minister to those around us with a clarity, without confusion, without the idea that somehow we just don't get it. No, I'm here to let you know that you can get it and you can proclaim it and God will work in that person's life in a mighty way as the Holy Spirit. Spirit convicts of sin and ministers to that person and they come to the cross and encounter the mercy and grace of Christ and the love of the Father can be shed abroad in their hearts and poured out upon them. That is why we need to know and we need to contend for the faith. I realize this doctrine is one that is difficult to get our minds around and being able to explain it. Listen, don't get into trying to explain something that at times is literally unexplainable. But proclaim what is. Proclaim what is found in the Bible. Proclaim what is revealed by Jesus himself, by God through the Old Testament and through the Old Testament prophets. Proclaim what is there and then let the Holy Spirit do the work in the hearts and lives of people. God is able to use us. Even in the midst of, of those who are confused about who God is and what God's like and how God acts and how God moves and what it is that he does and what makes up God, the, the world is confused about it. This is why we need to know the word of the Lord. Can we stand to our feet right now?